Uh, before I want to start preaching today, I wanted to thank two people. Um, I often get a number of people to give me input on my sermons before I preach them on a Sunday morning. And uh, this week, uh, both Dr. Brendan Case and Dr. David DeCosmo were hugely helpful in helping me think through pieces of this sermon. And so I just wanted to publicly thank them for coming alongside me in this. Some people refer to our liturgy and our prayer book in general as scripture arranged for worship. This is because so much of our liturgy comes directly from the scriptures. And as such, some passages become part of the regular landscape of our communal life together, our communal worship. Sure, the lectionary draws from different texts each week, but there are parts of the service that are present week in and week out. In a standard Eucharist service, we hear the, the summary of the law read by the deacon almost every week. In Kigali, I seldom had a deacon to help me serve, at least when our English service was just beginning public worship. And so, for years, I read that part of the liturgy by myself. We borrowed the liturgy from the Ugandan prayer book, which has a very similar feel to our own with some slightly different wording. And I actually really like uh, the way that the Ugandan prayer book puts this. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I, I love that wording, that way of phrasing it. And hang is actually a far more literal translation of the Greek. It is not just a summary of the law. No. Jesus gives us more than a summary of the law and more than a rank order of importance. The Lord reveals that these two commandments are the greatest because all of the others hang on them. They logically depend on them like giant beams that hold up the roof like we have here in Boston Temple. Jesus points to these two and says that all the rest of the structure, all the rest of the roof can only stay up because of these. And like most foundational elements of our faith, they deserve our regular attention. Many of us have heard these words more times than we can count, and I suspect that many of us have committed them to our memories. And that's a very good thing, in particular because when we hear Mark and inwardly digest a passage, it becomes part of us. It's something that we know even when we're under stress. Jesus is quoting two well-known passages of the Torah in his response to the religious lawyer's question, what is the greatest commandment? The first passage is known as the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them 
as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is a very important passage. Every good Jew with Jesus knows this text by heart. It was something that they prayed every morning, something bound to them and bound to their people. This was not a far-off answer. It's the simple answer. It's the answer that should have been obvious to everybody. But Jesus does something else. He does something more. He adds the second command, which is like the first. Love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he insists that the whole of the Torah and the prophets, this is a really major claim, depend on them. Now, this second verse comes from a passage in Leviticus 19.18, and actually is mirrored in 19.34. In these verses, the Lord commands Israel to love first their fellow Jews as themselves, and then just a few verses later, to love foreigners and immigrants just as as they were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So Jesus brings together this great command of central devotion to God, to the God of Israel, and marries it together with this Levitical law, both Jew, about both Jews and Gentiles, to convict the Pharisees who are questioning him. And Christians for thousands of years have rightly taken these two commands and bound them together to our own hearts, just as the Jews had done with the Shema. They formed the spirit of the law, if you will. And we do this so that in times of great adversity, these words can shepherd and guide and form our thoughts and actions, especially in confusing and difficult times, which is to say, especially in times like these. And so today I want to do two things. First, I want to briefly reflect on what love of God and love of neighbor mean. And second, I want to think about what these core commitments mean for us as members of a society just before an election. Fear not, I am not going to be making any political endorsements today, but I do want us to let these two great commandments help us grow in love during this time of bitter division and strife and heartache in the world all around us. So first, let's reflect on the love of God and the love of neighbor. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Well, it means that we love God with everything that we are. We do not partition off one part of ourselves, our souls, to love God with, while loving and serving other things with our bodies or our minds. We do not carve out one little corner of our lives to give God and give the rest to whoever it suits best. In Hebrew, the word soul is nefesh, and soul is, is not really a great translation, I think, of this Jewish concept. The nefesh is more than what we picture as some sort of disembodied soul. It's something, it's someone's whole being. It's your personhood. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord breathes life into Adam, and he becomes a living nefesh, a living creature. 
is the way that we translate that. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind means to love with your whole being. And this may seem obvious, but it's incredibly crucial. Earlier in chapter 22, Jesus is asked about taxes. And he says, to give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to give to God what is God's. The image of Caesar is printed on one of these silver coins, but the image of God is printed on us. So if Caesar wants some of his silver back, just let him have it. But you, you are made in God's image, and you should give your whole life to him. To love God with our whole being does not mean we feel warm and fuzzy about God. It means that we place him as Lord of our bodies, of our hearts, of our minds, of our whole lives. He is our end, the desire of our heart, the one who defines the good and the true and the beautiful for us. But it, importantly, for this moment, it also means that there is no political authority in which we seek our ultimate hope, fulfillment, or salvation. As Augustine puts it, we can never think of any earthly ruler, kingdom, or empire as embodying or bringing about the kingdom of God. We live in this earthly city, and we love and pray for our earthly leaders, however imperfect and vile they may be, as pale shadows of the true kingdom and the true king, which will one day reign forever. And as Christians, we should neither reject earthly authority altogether, nor should we hang our hopes on it, but rather understand it as the penultimate authority, not the ultimate one. And I am talking about our entire system of government, liberal democracy as a whole, not even just one political party. We should be very careful not to be carried away by political or nationalistic tribalism. To do so is to worship God with less than our whole hearts, soul, and mind. This is not to say that we can't participate in political action. Indeed, doing so is a form of loving this earthly city, of praying and working for its good, of planting vineyards. But we participate in these political activities while maintaining our ultimate citizenship and allegiance in the kingdom of God. We do so as sojourners and exiles, and in this way, our life now mimics the life God commands to the exiles who were in Babylon in Jeremiah 29. And this leads to the second command of Jesus, to love your neighbor as yourself. Our ultimate definition of love roots itself in the person of Jesus. First John tells us, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We saw this when we were looking at the form of Christ's humility in Philippians chapter 2. But the question remains, okay, aside from martyring ourselves, what does it actually look like to love in everyday life? What does it mean to love our parents and our co-workers and the random stranger behind their mask at the cash register? Well, Thomas Aquinas offers, I think, a succinct definition that I, I find continually practical and helpful. Love is to will the good for another. To will the good for another. For each and every neighbor, 
people like us and nothing like us. We are to will their good. To love them by acting toward them in a way that pursues the best of what God has for them according to the dignity of his image indelibly marked on their lives. And importantly, this does not mean always making them happy all the time. In our civil lives, laws are supposed to constrain evil and promote the common good, to promote human flourishing. And in that way, it's loving for a police officer to enforce a speed limit. It would be more loving for an officer to stop that person from speeding and even giving them a ticket before they get into an accident that endangers their life and the lives of others. And obviously this is a simple example, but it's one that illuminates the basic principle of how love is manifested through civic realities. But loving our neighbors, especially fellow believers, may sometimes entail some level of confrontation and conflict. And this, of course, is when things get really complicated. Indeed, in Matthew 18, where Jesus outlines healthy conflict in the church, he assumes that the confrontation is a form of love. Working towards justice in our community and broader society can be loving when we, first, truly see all the parties as image bearers and not the bad other, and two, when the means of our conflict and relating to one another are adequately calibrated to our relationship with them. We have different relationship with a random shop owner than somebody in the church. And our actions, the way that we go about confrontation, should, should be reflected in that. The world around us wants us to pick a side on inflammatory issues, simplifying extremely complex things into us and them. And today we are hosting a conversation about Brian Stevenson, a person and believer that I deeply admire. His Equal Justice Initiative has advocated for criminal justice reform for decades. Something I find so refreshing in Stevenson, though, is his refusal to adopt totalizing positions on issues like policing. He provides a clear and consistent voice regarding equal justice under the law and is not afraid to carefully elucidate ways the system in our country has failed to live up and may continue to fail to live up to that ideal. But neither does he demonize or delegitimize police. Rather, he offers a better vision a vision of communities building healthy relationships of trust with police officers who understand themselves as servants and guardians of justice for all. And in doing so, Stevenson can love both police officers and those communities who have felt terrorized by oppressive police practices. And such a strong, careful approach exemplifies a commitment to love each party as the image of God, even if it doesn't make one side or the other perfectly happy with that response. Second, what do we do with these twin commandments? What do we do in this particular cultural moment right before an election? Well, if you are like me, you find yourself surrounded by persons of a variety of fiery opinions all around you. Perhaps not so much physically around you in Boston, but certainly in our social and familial networks. In a little more than a week, we will vote in a national election. It is not my job to tell you how to vote, but it is my job to entreat you to love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. I do not think that that doing so obligates you to vote 
for any particular party. But here are a few things that I do think are really important to know. First, love those who are on the opposite side of issues and party affiliations. Will their good, and when appropriate, listen to them in an earnest desire to understand their fears, their longings, and their logic. If you simply can't understand how someone could vote for X or Y, you may not be able to love them well. Seek first to understand rather than to be understood. In some cases, a person may be open to persuasion and engaging them with an open mind be, may be a way to love them. And it could turn out that you yourself need to be persuaded or that each of you do. Love's transformation runs in multiple directions. And if you think it's the, it's, it is only the other who needs transformation or love, then usually that indicates that something has gone wrong in your thinking. That pride and self-assurance have eclipsed an appropriate and wise humility. Specks and logs. Thinking that everyone else has a log in their eye is a good indication that your own sight might be distorted. Two, do not give in to hysteria. Our hope as believers does not ultimately rest in whoever wins this election, and our ultimate desires, hopes, and loves do not depend on our political success. Many of our colleagues, neighbors, and classmates may not have a transcendent reference point for their lives, and thus politics provides one of the most substantial frames of hope or significance in their lives. But we do have something better to love. We have something better to put our hope in. Politics has always been messy, and it will continue to be messy until the end of all things. It will never provide the satisfaction and fulfillment that we are only meant to find in the true kingdom. So don't give in to hysteria. Three, Politics starts with your home, your family, and your pocketbook. In the heat of national fervor building up to elections, it can feel like our only role in politics happens by visiting a ballot box in November. But that simply isn't true. To love God and neighbor is political, civic, and economic, and we are called to do that not once every four years, but daily. Where we live, who we live with and among, where our children go to school, our vocations and investments, our friendships, all of it is political. They all have a bearing on the common good. And they are all opportunities for us to love God and neighbor in this earthly city. Do not allow your political imagination to be constrained by toxic rhetoric, but allow your discipleship to widen enliven and enhance your political vision. Do not give in to the extreme voices all around you that call for fear and despair. In a few weeks, we will know who our next president is. But right now, we already know who our Lord is, Jesus Christ. And we know who our neighbors are. Regardless of what happens on November 3rd, we know that we are called to love. And that calling should drive us to engage one another, not in fear, not in anger, but in hope. And that hope is the gift that the world needs from the church, 
in this moment.